given the deteriorating relations, um, the United States needs to make sure it has reliable supply in sectors where disruption would be really damaging for the economy. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Franzo Silia. Today on the podcast, we'll be discussing America's supply chains and how the COVID-19 pandemic fundamentally altered the way we think about globalization. Why do we keep hearing the terms nearshoring and onshoring? What's the deal with microchips and rare earth metals? And how should policymakers think about securing America's supply chains? To answer these questions and more, we're joined today by Edward Alden. Mr. Alden is the Bernard Schwartz Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, specializing in U.S. economic competitiveness, trade, and immigration policy. He's also the author of the book, Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Ted. It's great to be with you, Franz. Thanks for having me. All right. So supplies, supply chains or their importance are not something that is extensively taught at school here in the United States. Certainly, though, it has been a buzzword over the last year and a half as the COVID pandemic has tested our economy. With that said, could you please explain to our listeners what exactly are supply chains and how are they important in a modern economy? Yeah, very much. Uh, I, I think to a considerable extent, the theory that gets taught in school, particularly in economics faculties, hasn't really caught up to the practice. Um, our, our guiding notion of international trade is still Ricardo's idea of comparative advantage that, that countries make whatever it is they are best at and they trade with each other. But what's actually happened in the past 30 years or so, and the work of, of Richard Baldwin in, in Geneva is, is the best guide to this, is that, that with advances in communication technology, companies have been able to break up their production chains on a, on a global basis. Um, Suzanne Berger of MIT called it the Lego model of production. So what that means is, is in, in almost every significant sector, the finished products we're seeing, whether complicated ones like cars and computers or, or relatively simple ones like bicycles, use components that come from many different countries. And, and particularly for the complex products, companies often don't have a great degree of visibility into who is actually making what. They have you know, what are called their tier one suppliers, which are their major parts providers, but they don't really necessarily know where those suppliers are getting their parts and where the suppliers of the suppliers are getting their parts. And so you know, what we saw created over the last 30 years was a very delicate and complex system, economically efficient, good at driving down prices, good at increasing the quality of products because it allowed different companies to specialize in the components they were best at. But it left us very vulnerable to uh, disruptions, often not understood terribly well by the companies, whether due to the, the, the U.S.-China trade war or, uh, or more dramatically with COVID. And uh, that's very interesting to me because last year, Americans experienced some supply chains disruptions in their daily lives. We 
heard of shortages of toilet paper, of flour, and of course of medical equipment and devices. Could you expand on that and go over how America's supply chains were tested by the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, so the the early the early COVID um, responses, some of it, you know, some of it's unique to the the different products. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Um, I didn't I didn't realize this at the start of COVID, but learned as a result. Toilet paper, for example, um, there are two, probably way more than two, but at least two very different products that the companies are making. One is the is the home toilet paper we all have in our bathrooms, and the other is. Um, industrial or commercial toilet paper, which is what you see in restaurants or, you know, if you go to the bathroom in a shopping mall, uh, they're very different products. They use very different um, uh, methods and, and, and machinery for making those two different products. So, so what happened early on in COVID, of course, is all the restaurants shut down. Nobody was going shopping anymore. So the demand for commercial industrial toilet paper disappeared, but the demand for home use went through the roof because we were all basically locked down at home and the companies couldn't meet that demand in any timely fashion. I mean, medical equipment, I think, you know, a little more obvious in the sense that there was suddenly enormous demand for products like ventilators and masks that for the most part, countries haven't stockpiled. I mean, particularly, you know, what we came to know as PPE, personal protective equipment. Um, the U.S. had small stockpiles, but this stuff degrades over time. It's not like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, where you can stick the stuff underground and it'll be there 100 years later if you need it. If you're stockpiling PPE, it's going to degrade in a few years and you're constantly going to have to replace it. So very few countries did that. So that was just, that was a kind of old-fashioned demand greatly exceeding um, supply uh, problem. You know, we'll talk a little more, I imagine, about what's continuing to go on today. There are more lingering supply chain issues, but those were, were generally short-term ones that, that companies by and large responded to pretty effectively. I mean, I certainly haven't had any trouble in recent months uh, getting toilet paper at the grocery store. Absolutely. And, and that's a very good point. And now the market usually sorts itself out and meets demand in the long term. Uh, and I want to follow up on what you were saying in, in your last sentence there, which was what part of the supply chain has not recovered from from the pandemic? I mean, the, the one that, that's, that's most notable and probably most consequential is semiconductors. So, I, I mean, two, two things have, have happened. One is, is just the explosive growth in demand for computer chips. I mean, and all sorts of things that are fairly obvious, like you know, home video gaming or, uh, or computers or your, your smartphones. But I think most people don't realize that, that you know, your typical automobile has thousands of dollars of microchips uh, in it. Um, and, and what happened in, in COVID is, is two things. One, production got disrupted in various places and that's continuing to go on. You know, there's been a surge of Delta variant cases in Southeast Asia, which is very important for the for the semiconductor supply chain, and so we've seen quite recent disruptions in production as as COVID kind of jumps from country to country. I mean, it's everywhere, but you see these surges in particular places at particular times, which force 
um, some countries to lock down production uh, temporarily. The other thing that's gone on that's a little bit similar to the toilet paper story is just an explosion of, of demand. You know, we were all at home, you know, playing video games or realizing that the computers we'd been using really weren't perhaps up to work from home standards. And so we needed to upgrade our equipment or we were buying Peloton bikes to to exercise and 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 other devices that are heavy users of semiconductors. So so we have continuing um, up to today, and it looks like it's going to continue for some time. A significant global chip shortage. It's affected the auto companies most uh, dramatically. We are actually going to see a significant cut. We are seeing already significant cut in auto production because the companies simply don't have enough computer chips to to meet uh, demand for the vehicles that they want to to build and sell so car prices have already gone up and they're going to continue to go up i think for for some period of time until uh, until this sorts itself out and after after these supply chain disruptions and demand side um, pushes that the country has experienced over the last year and a half or so I have seen several ideas that have come into the fray regarding how to prevent these disruptions from happening again. And of course, these are the ideas of onshoring. Um, some academics have called for friendshoring. And uh, I think that your colleague at CFR recently wrote an article, your colleague at CFR, Shannon O'Neill, recently wrote an article on nearshoring to Latin America as well. So could you please give a, a brief description of, of these policy ideas that are starting to, to pop off in the in, in the academic circles and media circles as well. Yeah, so I think there are are two slightly different issues that we need to be clear on. So let me provide a little background before I before I launch into that. I mean, what we've been talking about so far are supply chain disruptions from the pandemic and the challenge that markets have had in adjusting to those disruptions. But there is a second issue, which is absolutely front and center in Washington, D.C. right now, and that is supply chain vulnerability and what are the security implications. So, you know, as you and your listeners know, um, the U.S.-China relationship has gone from one that was reasonably cooperative. The underlying notion for several decades has been that both the United States and China would benefit from trade and economic integration, and we all end up wealthier and happier. Um, we have moved into uh, a new stage where the United States, and this is true for Republicans and Democrats, sees China as much more of a competitor. And therefore, the question is, where are we reliant on China for critical inputs? Because China is, of course, uh, you know, the the the, the thousand pound gorilla in, in global supply chains because it's such a manufacturing powerhouse. And so the, the Biden administration has focused on areas like semiconductors, a big one, because apart from the commercial demands, there are enormous military uh, demands, um, what they call critical minerals, which are inputs into most of the advanced products we use, these are you know, materials like lithium and cobalt, but also what they call rare earth uh, materials uh, of which China um, produces about 85% of, uh, of global, global demand and refines almost all of it. Um, advanced battery technology for the next generation of electric vehicles. And of course, pharmaceuticals and, and pharmaceutical precursors so that we have drugs available 
for you know this and and future medical emergencies and for those products what the united states is talking about and the europeans and others are doing this as well is we need to significantly expand uh domestic capacity we cannot as a country be entirely dependent on China for advanced batteries or uh, rare earth materials or pharmaceuticals. And so the, 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 the thinking there is that we do need to engage in serious reshoring of those industries. And if you look at the recently passed Innovation and Competition Act in the Senate, there's a lot of money in that bill to try to encourage exactly that. Um, just quickly on the second part, because I, I don't want to go on too long here, the, this issue of, of sort of friend shoring or ally shoring, there, there, there is an awareness in the, in the Biden administration that you know, we live in a tremendously complex world. If you look at the COVID vaccines, for instance, you know, they're the product at the very least of U.S.-German collaboration, but there are you know, a dozen, 18, I don't know the exact number of countries that have had some piece of either the research or manufacturing that went into making the vaccines. And so the notion that somehow the United States is going to become self-sufficient in these critical areas is really a pipe dream and I think would, would end up uh, working against us. And so the thought is, well, let's at least not be dependent on China and other countries that we can't trust completely. Better to be dependent on the Canadians or the Mexicans or the Europeans or other countries that are that are trusted providers. Um, and that's a lot of the, de the debate right now. Um, I, I'll say one last piece, and this is my longest answer, I, I, I promise. The other thing that gets caught up this caught up in this is, is just the economic piece, which is the Biden administration has what they have been calling a worker-centered trade policy, worker-focused trade policy. So uh, the administration is trying to do two things. One, we need to reshore for these strategic security reasons, but in the process, we can create all these great jobs for Americans. And so the idea of ally shoring or friend shoring kind of works against that, right? We Maybe we don't really want to create great jobs for Canadians and Europeans. We want this stuff to happen here in the U.S. So there's a lot of tension right now, a lot of discussion over, you know, what's the right uh, degree of, of domestic reshoring versus relying on allies. And that's something that I want to explore explore further because I think that so much of U.S. economic policy ends up um, being a debate between what's good for American consumers, what's good for American workers, and what's good for American manufacturers. So how would each of these strategies be different and affect these three constituencies? And which ones um, is the most viable in your opinion? Uh, great question. So if if you're looking just at the security piece, then I think clearly the broader friendshoring strategy makes a lot of sense. Um, partly because, you know, domestic production is not in itself a guarantee against disruption, right? I mean, what if we have, you know, a massive earthquake that, that happens in a place of, you know, we, we're building new semiconductor facilities in California and California gets hit by a major earthquake or wildfires or, or you know, we have a, a pandemic outbreak here that shuts down our production. So self-sufficiency is no guarantee against supply chain disruption. So certainly from a, from a security perspective, you'd want to have this broader friend shoring support. From a consumer perspective, you would want the supply chain to continue to be as broad and deep as it possibly can. I mean, the arrangements of the last several decades have been great for consumers, right? I mean, you know, we live in a consumer cornucopia in which there are extremely high quality 
products available to us at astonishingly low cost. I mean, just look at the history of television sets, for example, and what they cost 30 years ago. So from a consumer perspective, you'd really want want this, you know, reshoring uh, undertaking to be as minimal as possible because it's going to work against lowest prices. Manufacturing is a complicated one. And I think you're going to see a lot of fights among different sectors. You know, for certain for certain sorts of manufacturing businesses, steel is a, a good example here. You're essentially making commodity products that are competing with commodity products from other countries. And so buy American rules, for instance, are great for the steel industry, right? If you want to say, you know, in construction projects coming out of the infrastructure bill, you got to buy American steel or cement is another pretty good example, though Mexico is a major cement producer or other kinds of commodity products. Um, good for American manufacturers to restrict foreign competition and you can bet they're lobbying for it like crazy. But a lot of American manufacturers, particularly smaller ones, are enormously dependent on inputs from other countries. You've seen this with the Chinese tariffs, right? The, you know, the the roughly 20% tariff that the United States has now on on most manufactured imports from China, interestingly accepting products like Apple's iPhones because Apple has such lobbying strength. But but you know, this most small manufacturers are paying these tariffs and it's really hurting their competitiveness because there are a range of manufacturing component imports that aren't made here in the United States probably can't be made at a viable scale here in the United States. And and U.S. manufacturers are dependent on imports. And so this is actually hurting their competitiveness. So I think even from a manufacturing perspective, you got to break it down. I think there are sectors of manufacturing for which uh, Buy American and, and Reshoring is a great thing, but there are other sectors for which it would actually be quite harmful. Um, What's the best approach? I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm going to give you a lame answer, which is you want to balance all three concerns and try to come up with the sweetest spot you can find. The, the, the challenge is a lot of this becomes political, right? I mean, in, you know, in theory, you could have, you know, experts try to design what's the, what's the optimal mix. But, but in each of these, you've got, you know, powerful industry groups and others lobbying for one outcome or another. So, you know, we know American politics rarely produces optimal outcome. So I, I think we can predict with a fair bit of confidence that some of these sectors that we are trying to reshore, like semiconductors or uh, or medical equipment, we're going to overproduce. They're going to be heavily subsidized and we're going to get overproduction. And, that, you know, and some companies are going to go out of business because, you know, they took government money to expand production when the market wasn't there. So I think, you know, there's going to be fallout uh, down the road from this for sure. And Ted, just to be clear, um, not all French shoring is the same. Correct. Um, say moving operations to Europe, where labor costs are very high, is not the same as as moving operations to Latin America. So oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. So 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 in that so in that case, like it, it, when we are talking about French shoring, um, perhaps is um, is is it also worth mentioning that that we're not really talking about uh, Europe and. And Japan and more advanced economies, and we're more talking about uh, Latin America and perhaps some Asian allies as well. I mean, I think it really, again, it really depends on the on the product, right? I mean, you know, for uh, you know, in the auto sector, in in you know, computer manufacturing and others, Mexico is a major player. Um, advanced battery technology, I guess, we'll see, right? Most of that 
so far is being done domestically here in the United States. But but I would think that that's an area we'll likely see companies expand to Mexico. Mexico is not, I think I'm correct on this, an important part of the medical, um, you know, pharmaceutical uh, supply chain. You know, critical minerals kind of are where they are. Uh, the Canadians have got a lot. I think Mexicans have some. So it's hard. It's hard to generalize. Um, but I, I think your your point is an accurate one, which is, which is you know, to the extent that companies need to continue to follow market dictates, and they do, and there are you know savings from locating certain operations in lower cost places like Mexico and Latin America. One can expect that uh, that that companies will do that. And this this question about nearshoring to to Latin America is is very interesting to me because it seems. Well, let me backtrack first. We've, we have talked already about a little bit about how these things would affect American consumers, American producers, and American manufacturers. If, say, that a plan to to go near-shoring or French-shoring to Latin America or, or, or these other countries from China um, goes through, would, what type of economic advantages and um, fruitfulness would come to Latin American economies and the economies of these countries that we're nearshoring to? Yeah, that's a good question. You should probably actually get Shannon O'Neill on your show. She's, uh, you know, she's uh, got a book coming out on all of this and is, it is, I got much more expertise in Mexico and the Latin American economies than, than I do. Um, you know, one would expect significant benefits, but, you know, Mexico's history is interesting, right? I mean, you know, Mexico is much more of an industrial powerhouse than it has ever been before. It's developed a more vibrant middle class, but you haven't seen, for example, significant increase in Mexican wages, which has helped raise living standards for a lot of those, you know, farther down the economic totem pole. This is a big issue between the United States and Mexico. The new U.S. trade representative, Catherine Tai, biggest issue she's focused on is labor rights in Mexico. There have been two notable cases recently involving union organizing rules in, in Mexico. So, I don't. I mean, I don't think that we can necessarily say with confidence that you know, if if more, say, of the manufacturing that was taking place in China moves to Mexico and other places in Latin America, that that, w- that this will translate in some direct way into higher wages and living standards in in Mexico. It might. I mean, to the extent that the competition from China is reduced, that ought to be a good thing for Mexico. I think part of what happened with Mexico um, is that that Mexico saw this surge in new plant location after the NAFTA came into effect. But then China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, and a lot of companies uh, began to, to source from China instead because even with the advantage of proximity in Mexico, costs were lower in China. So, you know, if China becomes a less desirable location, that could benefit Mexico. But, but it's one of the, the hard things about talking about supply chains is it, it may very well be a product by product thing, right? I mean, I, I, we are seeing, and I think we will see more decoupling between the U.S. and Chinese economies on products that have um, strategic, Relevance. I mean, we haven't talked about Huawei and telecoms equipment, for example, right? I mean, these are areas where the U.S. and China are not going to trade. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, textiles or furniture or toys or, you know, uh, a whole bunch of other products, 
I would expect trade with China will continue. And so the the sectors in which Mexico is likely to be able to benefit from this friendshoring may be a fairly narrow set of sectors that, that have larger security strategic implications rather than across the board in the economy. And Ted, I think that this is a good point to segue into discussing China in this in this debate, which is if the United States and the rest of the world and the rest of the Western world that that is um, go through and are successful in convincing private companies to decouple from China, in your experience, how 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 would we expect China to respond to this, and would they would they even try and respond to this? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question, and there are there are no good historical parallels here, right? I mean, if you look at the at the Cold War, Soviet Union was never particularly integrated into the Western economy. I mean, we began, you know, embargoing the Soviets right after World War II, and there was a whole complicated export control regime known as COCOM to keep them from getting advanced technology. But that wasn't particularly disruptive for companies because Western companies weren't doing business with the Russians anyway, except in a few areas like agriculture. China, right, every major company is is deeply engaged in China. China's a profit center for global multinationals. So, I mean, I, I think first, I think we're going to see a lot of resistance to this. And if you look at the aggregate trade numbers between the United States and, and China, and some of this is COVID because there's a lot of demand for Chinese-made consumer products, but but trade is still extremely strong between China and the U.S. You don't you don't see this decoupling showing up much yet in the in the trade figure. So I think I think first I think there's going to be a lot of resistance and and the Chinese, you know, are are actually doing various things to try to make it easier for western companies to do business. There've been some for, reforms recently to financial services investment rules in China. So I think the first thing China's going to do is 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 try to make sure the companies don't all pull out. Um, the second thing that China's going to do and is already doing is in these critical technology areas, it's going to double down on its drive for self-sufficiency. And, you know, to be clear, the, the Chinese started this in, in many ways. If you look in the, you know, Made in China 2020, 2025 and beyond initiatives, um, these were all focused on um, using the tools of government to help give China a dominant position in the strategic industries of the future. So the, the Chinese have been headed in this direction for some time now. Um, the U.S. actions are forcing China to double down. And there's some places where it's going to be very challenging. I mean, China does not have uh, high-end semiconductor fabrication capability. And U.S.-led sanctions are you know, denying Chinese firms like Huawei a lot of the most advanced computer chips. China doesn't have easy answers for that but 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 the country i think is going to do everything it can to in effect mirror what the us is talking about to reduce its dependence on western suppliers for critical technologies even as i think in less critical technologies it will try to maintain reasonably open trade and I, and i think it's very unsurprising that china is trying to make it seem like investing in china is more secure and worthwhile by making it easier to do business in China. Because I think that they understand that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the decoupling would be mainly driven by the private sector, of course. 
And for that to happen, there has to be viable alternatives in other parts of the world. And um, and for example, like, let's say we've been talking about the um, nearshoring to Latin America. Uh, that's great in theory, but the, Latin America has a massive political instability every four years. I don't know if companies like that. So I think China understands this. And it, and so so would, would you agree with that? Would you agree that this nearshoring and this securing of the supply chains is mostly driven by the private sector? So the, so the US government has to try and find ways to incentivize them to taking action instead of just hoping that they would. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I would use slightly different language, but but I think you're describing it correctly. You know, where we started this conversation in the growth of, of global supply chains, you know, that was that was very much market driven, right? I mean, companies were doing what made the most economic sense for them. I mean, certainly in places, uh, China was subsidizing companies to locate in China and offering them, you know, cheap land and capital and other things. But But we don't need to go into that in great detail. Basically, it was market driven. Now what you're seeing is companies under a lot of pressure from governments, particularly the U.S. government, to try to make decisions that are not market-based, right? So, you know, left to their own devices, the companies would continue to invest and expand in China. But, you know, if you've got U.S. sanctions, for instance, that mean you can't bring, you know, high-end semiconductors or other critical products into China, that makes it very difficult for some companies to do business in China. And then they have to recalculate, right? So, you know, for instance, can a lot of companies are looking at, can we segment our Chinese operations from from the parts that are doing business with the United States uh, and in effect have, you know, two kinds of entities working in in different ways? Are there other places close to China, like Vietnam or Malaysia, where we could relocate to fairly easily? We saw a lot of that as a result of the Trump tariffs, uh, companies sort of doing an end run to Vietnam to escape some of, of the tariff costs. Um, yeah. Certainly, companies are looking at alternatives like Latin America. Okay, if we were to to relocate production there, what are the are the pluses and the minuses? And then your last point, there's the question of incentives. You know, if you look at at, at semiconductors, I mean, part of the reason that you know Taiwan and and South Korea are the world's leaders in semiconductor fabrication is that the governments in those two companies and two countries put a lot of money into it. I mean, building a new semiconductor fabrication facility is a multi-billion dollar, multi-year undertaking. And so the U.S. government is now willing, it's, it made it clear in the Senate passed innovation and competition uh, bill, um, willing to shower billions of dollars on semiconductor companies to build fabrication capability here in the United States. So, so these are all the things that the folks in the C-suite are, are looking at, right? What's the, you know, what's the risk of staying in China? What are the alternative? Um, what, what are the risks of moving and how much money are governments likely to throw at me if I'm willing to, to move uh, away from China? And, and, and they're, they're making these calculations. And it certainly seems like the the companies right now have quite a bit of leverage uh, in this upcoming debate as as the situation plays out in the next decade or so. They they do indeed have a lot of leverage, but they're also potentially vulnerable, right? I mean, you know, if you look at what the United States has done to Huawei on telecoms or what it's done with semiconductors, the government has some big clubs, right? And and uh, it's possible to tell companies that they can't do business in certain places. I mean, another example at a, at a sort of lower end is, is cotton coming from Xinjiang, the region in China 
where the Chinese have been um, have been uh, you know committing a whole range of human rights violations with respect to the Uyghur Muslim population. I mean, you now have rules in place in the United States which are forcing companies to guarantee that none of their textile and clothing products are made with Xinjiang cotton, which is a tremendously complex tracing undertaking. Um, but you know that that that's a big hammer that the U.S. government has been able to use that companies are just having to respond to. So certainly there are places, absolutely the high end like semiconductors, where where companies have got a lot of leverage, um, they've got potentially a lot of political clout. But there are other places where where companies just don't really have choice. U.S. government is telling them you can't do business, you know, here, there, or in this product or that product. And, and the, you know, the penalties for doing so are severe, right? Huge fines, potentially criminal penalties for the executives. And they're just going to have to fall in line. And that's a new world for, for most companies, not something that we've seen much of until recently. All right, Ted. So we've gone over the existing issues within our supply chains, the potential remedies to it as well as some of their downfalls. And we've just discussed the geopolitics of the debate as well. Now, given what we've talked about today, in your opinion, what is what is the best way of securing America's supply chain? I know it's a loaded question, but I would love to hear your answer. And what must the United States government, the U.S. private sector, and our regional partners do to make this supply chain vulnerability well less vul vulnerable? Yeah, I mean, I really think I, I feel like I'm reiterating a little bit, but I but I I think the Biden administration is on the right track in the sense of focusing on critical inputs where the United States could be left very vulnerable in the event, say, of, of a you know, Chinese um, uh, export ban on, uh, on, on certain products that are critical inputs to the U.S. economy or for U.S. defense reasons. I mean, for, you know, for years, for example, we've treated oil as a strategic commodity and did all sorts of things in this country, both to protect ourselves against oil disruptions and to expand domestic production so we would not be so vulnerable to the OPEC cartel, for instance. That was an entirely sensible thing to do that involved uh, governments working closely with the private sector. I think there are many of these emerging uh, sectors that are as critical as uh, to the economy and to our security as oil was uh, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. So I actually think the administration, by and large, and a lot of this is still at the conceptual phase, but administration, by and large, I think is taking the right tack that given deteriorating relations with China in particular, we haven't talked about Russia much, but there are a lot of issues with Russia too. Given the deteriorating relations, um, the United States needs to make sure it has reliable supply in sectors where disruption would be really damaging for the economy. You know, if we go back to the toilet paper example, there are other sectors where consumers may incon be inconvenienced and, you know, prices may spike temporarily. Lumber prices have done that uh, here over the last year for a variety of reasons. I think in those areas, for the most part, government just needs to stay out. Say, look, there are going to be market disruptions. There are going to be supply disruptions. But that's something that the private sector and the market can take care of. There may be a period of time where things don't work perfectly, but it'll balance out. And the government should really be focusing its effort on these strategically 
uh, critical sectors. Well, Ted, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks very much. It's been great to be with you, Franz. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time. Thank you.